The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, I'm Haley Hubbard, mom to three and wife to a country music star. And I'm Jess Diamond, registered dietitian nutritionist and mom to one. And this is Meaningful Living, a community to make parenting and life a little easier and a lot less lonely. Every week, we talk to experts, parents, and answer your questions to share the practical tips and real side of parenting we all need. Because when you remove the doubt, fear, and stress from everyday decisions, you create more time for the meaningful moments. It takes a village. We're so excited to share ours with you. I'm so excited for today's episode. We're missing Haley because she's traveling. So I'm tackling this one solo. Hopefully I can hold down the fort. But something I get asked all the time and I think every parent is freaked out about is high allergen foods and food allergies. We talk a lot about this, right? About food allergies in our baby course and we do tons of education on it. But even when we're told to you know, introduce these high allergen foods early and often, it's really scary. I mean, I even know that was the case for me and I knew all this information So, and I teach this. So navigating food allergies along with a lot of the other infinite responsibilities we have as parents can be so overwhelming. So today we're here with Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson and she is giving us Food Allergy 101. Dr. Swanson is amazing. She's a world-renowned pediatrician as well as an author. Her book, it's called Mama Doc Medicine, is wonderful. And she does a bunch of education. You've probably seen her at some point on social media or the news, and she's a mom. And today she's answering all your frequently asked questions about food allergies and pediatrician stuff. And we hope this will just take out some fear and anxiety out of food allergies and help you feel so much more confident navigating all this. So thank you so much, Dr. Swanson, for being here. Let's start off just with food allergies. Walk us through food allergies. Are they more prevalent now? Why are they more prevalent? Yeah. So, well, of course. So food allergies are a big bummer, right? And I think sometimes we like to think of them in a compartment that they're kind of somebody else's problem if they don't live in your house. But really they're everybody's problem because when you have an allergy to a food, an IgE-mediated allergy to a food, every single day of your life, you have to be thoughtful, careful, and you're dependent on your surroundings, the truthfulness of those who are preparing food, right? And every, every part of the environment. We know that food allergies are on the rise, that ultimately living on the planet today is not like living on the planet 50 years ago, that there's what we call a modern susceptibility to allergic disease, not just food allergies, but allergies in general. And there are, we can get into the theories of, of why that is. There's some significant proof of why that is, but we know there's a modern susceptibility So, you know, I'm in my late 40s. I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And when I went to kindergarten and when I went to eighth grade, I was not, there was not a peanut-free table or a nut-free table or kids around me with a lot of food allergies. We know that every decade from the 90s to the 2000s to 2010 and, and to now, each one of the decades, food allergies have doubled in children each decade. So you can't explain that with genetics alone or biology alone. We know that there's, right, there's an environmental factor at play, that modern susceptibility. And so how we raise our kids, how we feed our kids, how we think about it, how what kind of comfort we feel in feeding all different kinds of food is exquisitely important. And, And we'll get into why, but who your baby is and who their immune system is when they're four months versus when they're 10 months probably even or when they're four years or when they're in their 40s like me are really different. There's an amazing opportunity to kind of design your baby's immune system. And this is not hocus pocus woo-woo. This is real science-based data that 
how your baby feeds, how your baby explores the world, how your baby lives in this modern environment is really amazing in the sense that it can change who they become and who they are when it comes from an allergic standpoint. So we know food allergies are on the rise. We know 6 million children in the United States now have a food allergy by the time they go off to college. That's 8% of U.S. children. If you do the math, that means there's two kids in every single classroom with a food allergy. And that is not what it used to be, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, it's just wild. And I and I like what you said because I think there's so much with genetic makeup and, and our immune system that we can't control, right? Like parents always say, like, did I cause my kid to have a food allergy, mm. right? No, mm. there, there's oh. <laughs> no. Can't say fast enough, right? Yeah. And that being said, the science that we have today, so, you know, when I started practice in 2006, you know, what I was telling families was the wrong advice, like major advertisement, right? Like we were doing it wrong. We were telling families to avoid allergens. We were kind of keeping kids in a little hygienic bubble. And of course, data that has unfolded since then has totally rebuked that, has showed us really strongly that in fact, when a child is constantly and overwhelmingly even exposed to all different kinds of foods, all different kinds of diversity in their early life, the immune system grows tolerant to it. It grows up in the comfort and in arm's reach of those foods in a way that the immune system says, okay, yeah, there's soy. Oh, yeah, there's peanut. Oh, there's cod. There's sesame. There's those common allergens. And when I'm exposed to them early in the tummy, the baby over and over again, then that baby's body basically says, yeah, this is the planet I live in. I'm not going to overreact. However, you know, we know that this modern susceptibility is caused in part because of overuse of antibiotics, both in children, but in livestock and and the different kind of in our food source. We know that, for example... And like a more hygienic life leads to a more allergic life in early life. So for example, there's a large study called the Pasteur study that really evaluated children being raised in a rural environment versus children being raised in a more urban. Those kids in the rural environment on the farm with dirt, bacteria, gunk all around them, those kids grow up to be much less allergic, less asthma, less allergic rhinitis or hay fever, less food allergy as well. We also know vitamin D is a player. So we now recommend, and I'm sure you guys have talked about this, but you know, vitamin D supplementation in infancy for even formula-fed babies and breastfed babies, because we know that kind of naturally mom won't give baby as much vitamin D as is beneficial. And even in formula-fed babies, they likely don't get enough. And we know it mediates T cells, which are part of your immune system. So, and, and we know, for example, if you raise a baby in a house with a dog, believe it or not, they're less likely to go on and get allergic disease because the the, the the dog is bringing in bacteria and parasites and fungus and tons of like environmental diversity. It's more like raising your kid on a farm when you've got like Fido in the house. So we know that in the modern world, we know that detergents break down our skin. We are getting more exposed to the environment in kind of unnatural ways versus a natural way that we want to always be exposed to food is through the stomach. And so our great-grandmothers were feeding us all goulash and mixed-up gunk, right, because they were just taking whatever the family was eating, giving small portions in age-appropriate ways to infants and children, and that was really advantageous. So they were doing all of that naturally, but they also didn't have this modern susceptibility that's come from industrialized nations and a lack of diet diversity and a lack of microbiota. I mean, we know a good diverse microbiome is a mediator in the development of allergies too. So we want babies to eat natural live cultures. We want them to be exposed to all these different things, and we want them to get as few antibiotics as possible. So it's in that sense that 
it's really kind of marvelous and amazing that it's it's not pressure for families, but I do know that if a mom and dad, if they really are intentional about how they feed a baby, they will set their kid up for a healthier lifestyle and a less allergic lifestyle as well. That's totally the place we need to get back to, which is kind of this less medicalized approach to feeding and much more kind of exposing our kids to their surrounding and the foods that we eat and, and all those types of things. So I think it's safe to say that sleep is probably the most coveted thing in parenthood. And with the start of the new school year, and as we get used to these earlier bedtimes and prompt wake-up times, which we've been having a hard time with, and busy schedules, it's not uncommon for kids to have difficulty falling asleep and staying asleep throughout the night. And we know how important sleep is for growing kids, right? We need it for healthy physical, mental, and emotional development. So this is where Boron's homeopathic Sleep Calm Kids comes in. Sleep Calm Kids calms restless sleep without melatonin, which is really important because melatonin is actually a hormone and it's not so great to take on a regular basis. So your child can actually fall asleep and stay asleep without feeling groggy the next day. We love Boron's homeopathic products. We initially got hooked on their products with their Camellia teething relief, which was a staple in our house during teething times. And we loved it so much. So this sleep aid is incredible. Because it's homeopathic, the gentle action of homeopathy makes it perfect for children. So instead of flooding our kids, you know, with powerful hormone like melatonin or knocking them out with sedatives, this helps a child's body actually rebalance its sleep-wake cycle for healthier sleep. Sleep Calm Kids offers calming relief of occasional sleepiness, restless sleep, intermittent waking, irritability, and even nightmares. It's really a dream come true, pun intended. And it's a blend of plant-based and other pure active ingredients, which helps restore a natural sleep pattern that's often disturbed by upsets and excitement, changes in schedule, all the normal stuff we're experiencing right now. And the pre-measured liquid that it comes in, their doses are so easy for kids to take. There's no chewing or swallowing pills. It's convenient and portable, which I love. With Sleep Calm Kids, everyone can start the new year off refreshed and ready to learn. Use code LIVING at checkout at boronusa.com. That's B-O-I-R-O-N-U-S-A.com for 20% off your first purchase of Sleep Calm Kids and any Boron products. Again, that's code LIVING at boronusa.com. And these claims are based on traditional homeopathic practice, not accepted medical evidence, and not FDA evaluated. Are you going on date after date and still not finding the one or getting a text back? Well, you're probably doing something wrong. And I am here to tell you exactly what that is. I'm Lindsay Metzlar and I host We Met at Acme. It's a dating podcast that gives you all the rules and guidelines that you need to date successfully. Hey, it worked for me and now I'm married. So you really should give it a listen if you haven't already. And you can also hear the horrors of dating. Everything that you want to hear is in We Met at Acme. So check it out. One of the things I hear a lot is there's still many, many pediatricians out there that tell families that they should avoid those high allergen foods until at least one or two or three years old, which what you just said, that's that's really outdated. So when should when should we be introducing high allergen foods and why should we be introducing them that early? 
So the very bottom line crisp answer is you should be giving your baby as much diet diversity. That means as many different food groups, including allergens, as early as possible. So that means when you and your baby decide it's time for solids, it is time to introduce common allergens. It's not just fruits and vegetables and cereals at the start. It's fruits, vegetables, nuts, eggs, dairy, right? Fish, shellfish, seeds, things like sesame, right? Even legumes. So peanuts are considered legumes and soy, right? You want to get all those different ingredients in as early as possible and keep them in the diet. It's not a one-hit wonder thing. It's not like you give your baby a little peanut butter and oatmeal when they're you know, five and a half months old and, and, you, and you wipe your hands of it. No way. And the reason being, and the why is so important in that it was a huge groundbreaking study called the LEAP trial that changed everything. That was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is like the best, you know, kind of high impact journal that's out there in 2015. And what that found is that if they took babies as young as four months of age who were at risk for allergies and they fed them peanut, not just once and early at four months, but three times a week, the whole time that they were an infant, the whole time they were in toddler, the whole time they were preschool until they were 60 months of age or five years of age. So basically from infancy to kindergarten, if they fed those babies peanut three times a week all that time, those babies were 80% less likely to go on and develop a peanut allergy, even if they were at really high risk with eczema. So that turned everything upside down when we realized that, in fact, it was the avoidance that was actually likely accelerating the development of food allergies and peanut being the number one food allergy. We were also overlooking all, all of these others. And, and so, you know, what we know, bottom line, moms and dads want to get common allergens in their baby's diet way before a baby has developed a sensitization or an allergy to it, and they want to keep it in there. And so that's where it gets really complicated is babies sometimes are like Hoover vacuums and eat a ton right out of the gates, you know, and some babies really don't, right? They dabble in solid foods. They love breastfeeding or they love taking a bottle and it takes them a little bit longer. So what a parent has to think about is, okay, not only do you not want to be scared of these foods, you shouldn't be. Almost every single feeding across the United States is a non-event, right? It's rare that a child has a reaction, but there is not a known fatal reaction in an infant from food. We know that kind of the body is designed to show you a reaction when a baby has it, but it doesn't tend to be life-threatening and as scary as I think you see on the movies and older people's in their reaction to food allergy. So bottom line is early as possible and as often as possible, you get these common allergens from your table foods and from the, the things that baby loves, but really intentionally, even some things that you maybe don't eat a lot because what your baby's immune system is doing in early life is learning, creating patterns, and creating memory. And so there's there are these little cells called dendritic cells that in the tummy present to your immune system the little food proteins. And you want those dendritic cells to be presenting all the different foods in the kind of rainbow foods. You want your baby to travel to China. You want your baby to travel to, to, to Tokyo. You want your baby to travel to Europe. You want your baby to go to South America. You want them to eat anything in the world. Even if you guys don't eat it in Kansas or you don't eat it in, you know, I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, right? My habits, I don't want them to just be my kids. I want my kids to eat the world, right? So part of the way we do that is we bring them the world in early life so that their immune system says, I know this planet. I'm comfortable with this planet. I can eat this planet. And that's how and, and why it's so important in early life. In fact, another Another study called the CHILD study was a study out of Canada, and it looked at well babies, so not babies at risk, like in the LEAP trial that looked at peanut. And they studied those kids, and we found that if a mom and dad didn't introduce peanut until a baby was a year, 
that baby was four times more likely to go on and develop a peanut allergy than the moms and dads who introduced it before a year. And if parents waited until 18 months, then those babies were seven times more likely to go on and develop a peanut allergy. So it's it's not just getting in it. It's like, you got to, don't wait. Waiting is actually the risk. Introduction is not. So it's, it's kind of like emancipating families to be like, wait a second. You get to decide whatever the first food is, whatever you want it to be. And, and then you get to basically bring the world of your palate and flavors in. And then even if like you don't like shrimp and you don't like cod, I don't care. Babies might really love it. And we know that the, you know, even like flavor preference is most open in babies between four and seven months of age. So like if you can bring bitter foods and naturally sweet foods and savory foods and, and fishy foods, all those different foods to your baby's diet, you might even help them with kind of a, a, a flavor bouquet, right? In some ways of exposing them to all those different foods. We're going to have to talk about this, but I actually went to school in Wisconsin. I went to school in Madison. Oh, you did? Oh, good. That's where I live now. It's kind of weird, but yeah, I love it. It actually just got rated this past week as the best livable city in the United States. So I'm feeling pretty proud because people are always like, what are you doing in Wisconsin? (laughs) It's like, it's awesome. Like I'm sitting here looking at the lake (laughs) as I talk to you. So it's good. It's amazing. Yeah. That's great that you went to Madison. Yeah. I always, I always say too, like we should stop thinking about baby food, really any food, toddler food, baby food, anything as this bland single ingredient item and think of it just as an extension of a safe way of what we actually eat ourselves. So as just, you know, an extension of what we're eating so we can expose them to so many different things. Let's talk through practically, because I think if parents can kind of see and think about what does a food allergy actually look like and what do I do if it happens? And is there kind of this difference between, you know, like an anaphylactic reaction versus a skin reaction? So what should parents look for? What should they have on hand? What should they do if they see a reaction? So first and foremost, there's this myth out there that I want to break up. Don't ever rub food on your baby's skin. That's the last thing we want to do. In fact, that's sensitizing, right? We don't want baby to be introduced to peanut. We don't want baby to be introduced to egg. We don't want baby to be introduced to fish through their skin. We want them to be introduced through their gut. 70% of a baby's immune system is circulating through that GI tract. So from their mouth to their bum. And we want them to be introduced to food there. So first and foremost, no testing, no no rubbing things in. In fact, we don't even want families to ever use things that have food ingredients like cocoa butter or sesame oil, anything that's a food ingredient. We never want that in the skin. So we want babies, especially because, you know, eczema is the number one risk factor for developing a food allergy. About 20% of U.S. babies have eczema. Dry, cracked skin can sometimes be in the fold of the elbows or the folds of the knees, but sometimes all over a baby's body. And a child who has severe eczema is at high risk for developing a food allergy. And the reason being, they're getting exposed to food in the environment through their broken down and open skin. And the immune system doesn't like that. So, you know, work with your pediatrician if your baby's got dry skin on what kind of what we call emollients or creams we want on your baby's skin. And then get those foods in. Now, how to do it and and on what schedule to do it is a little bit more controversial in the sense that like there isn't a gold, you know, kind of biblical way to do this. But what I do know is that you choose your first foods and if baby led weeding is your thing, great. And, you know, let baby choose and self-feed it as much as possible, but don't restrict how many different things you get in. So what I, you know, I love, I love the website Solid Starts. I think they do a nice job at giving people, you know, they're, they're different, like you can subscribe to all these things, but the bottom line is, I like the idea of a new food every single day. You know, it used to be in the olden days, we would tell people to wait days in between feedings. You don't need to do that. If a child is going to have an allergic reaction, and I'll get into what that means and what that looks like. If they're going to have it, first and foremost, it will be either immediate or it will occur within two hours. 
it is extremely unlikely to have an IgE-mediated allergy after two hours of feeding. That means you can feed your baby at eight in the morning. They can go down for a nap or whatever. You can go to the park. You're, if something happens in the afternoon or they get a diaper rash or they puke or they something else happens, it is not from eating something at eight in the morning. So when a child is already allergic to a food or has what's called, they've sensitized, before feeding a food. So let's say, you know, in the worst case scenario, your baby has eczema, they've already developed an allergy and you decide, okay, I'm going to mix peanut butter into oatmeal and your baby has a peanut allergy. What you will see is this, within usually minutes to kind of half an hour, an hour, a baby will develop immediate hives on their body. Hives are a kind of rash that you can see with your fingers. So you close your eyes, you rub your hand over their skin, you can feel that lump. It typically is described as like a a fried egg appearance where it's got kind of a center white part and then kind of a, a you know, a, a splash around it in that sense. You would be able to feel a rash that are hives in your baby. And that would usually be within minutes or the second most common symptom of an allergic reaction in infants is vomiting. And sometimes it's just once, but sometimes it's multiple episodes of vomiting after eating a food. And again, that'll be minutes to an hour or two at maximum. Now, the problem with that is, is like babies puke all the time. <laughs> so it's right. like, but you'll know it. And like sometimes when families end up with the diagnosis of a food allergy, they're like, I gave my baby scrambled eggs and then they kind of puked. And then like the next Tuesday, I gave them scrambled eggs and they puked again. He'd be like, you know what? I should maybe talk to my pediatrician because <laughs> at first she'll be like, I oh, no big deal. But then the second time you're like, oh, oh, and she got a little splotchy on her face after she, after she <laughs> yeah. ate the eggs, right? Not to be confused with other things, but just to, I just want to be really crisp. Again, 90% of babies who have an allergic reaction to a food that's real, it'll be hives and vomiting. 90% of babies who have a food allergy and react have hives. So usually you will always see hives. And again, it'll be within minutes or so. Now, sometimes it'll just be on the face, but sometimes it'll be whole body. And if that's the case, you can call your pediatrician. You usually don't need to do anything emergent. I do not recommend using Benadryl because it can make kids sleepy and confuse things a little bit. You can use other medicines called like cetirizine or like Desertec or Claritin, which is loratadine. But you can talk to your pediatrician about that if you got worried about it. If you ever saw anything more concerning, like, you know, a wheezy type noise in their breathing or something that was more severe than that severe diarrhea that was like, you know, really different. You would talk to your pediatrician, of course, anyway. But in general, that's the kind of reaction that you'd see. Now, you don't need to have, you know, you don't need to go to your pediatrician's waiting room to feed your baby an allergen. You do not need to drive to the ER parking lot and sit there. In general, right, the far, 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 far majority of feedings are non-events. And in the very rare case that your child does have an allergy the first time that you feed them, it'll typically be those mild to moderate symptoms, hives and vomiting, and you'll be able to manage them. But they're rare. And that's the great thing. And the earlier that you introduce foods, the less likely a child has ever had time on planet Earth to develop a sensitization. It's only in very rare immune dysfunction that a child is born with an allergy. In general, children develop allergies because of that modern susceptibility after living on the planet because they're sensitized somehow to a food ingredient. Does that help? Yeah, that that totally helps. And I love that you said early and often, and something I want to clarify is when food allergies actually happen, because some say it's the first exposure. Some say it can be any subsequent exposures. Yeah, it can be subsequent, but more likely it'll be the first time, to be honest with you. So it isn't, that's why the old adage of like feed for three days and then move on to another, you don't need to do that. So if you feed, you, you know, you typically, you could have a mild reaction one day and it, it, you could have a little bit more of a mild reaction later. Sometimes, you know, allergic reactions can accelerate, but it, not generally. So I would really trust your guts on saying, if you feed your baby peanut butter and some oatmeal today and that goes great, when you do it tomorrow, it's going to go great too. I don't want you to like lose sleep on that. And I want you to keep it in. 
And then I want you to add other things, but you can add a different new food every day. In fact, if you really do the math, you can do it a couple times a day. So you could introduce avocado in the morning and peanut butter in the afternoon, and then the next day put a little bit of yogurt in their food. And that's fine to do. If that doesn't feel comfortable for you, or you don't want to introduce a bunch of stuff right at once, then do it at least once a day and then keep it in. I mean, that's what gets difficult about it is that I don't want you to like introduce it and then pack it away for seven months because we do see kids who will have, you know, a taste of something. And then mom doesn't give it any longer. Dad doesn't give it any longer. And then six months later, they eat it again and the kid has an allergic reaction. They go and see the allergist and the allergist thinks, yeah, unfortunately, your kid had eczema that whole time and you didn't use the opportunity that immune system learning during those months. So it is like an act to say, okay, we're going to right out of the gates, try these things with touches and flavors, get them in. And if baby doesn't love it, still find a way to keep it in. I mean, that's why I'm working in Spoonful One. I mean, it's why I believe in what we're doing and trying to basically change the food source for babies. If you look at, you know, if you go to Target or you go to Walmart, you go to the grocery and you buy prepackaged baby food. I mean, you might be these hero parents who like make it all and you're all perfect and it's all organic. I mean, hallelujah and good for you. But I was a (laughs) full-time working pediatrician when I raised my kids and I am a happy, proud woman who bought baby food. (laughs) Then I chose organic foods when I could, even though there isn't a single study that shows there's a health benefit. I know it's good for the world. I know it's good for my babies to have less contaminants and, you know, organic pesticides and everything else. But you know, when you look at the food source, you know, somewhere between 70 and 90% of U.S. families will end up buying, you know, commercially produced baby food at some point, it being cereals or purees or snacks. And we know that when you look at the, the shelves, they are devoid of allergens. So if you rely on that as your food source, you're not going to get these ingredients into baby enough, let alone regularly in that time where we know that, you know, feeding a six-month-old baby versus feeding a six-year-old, like I care deeply about how you feed a six-year-old. Like my 13 and 15-year-old boys, like I still am working really hard at providing them a great food source. They are still making themselves, right? They are growing rapidly again during puberty. Like they are literally making their bodies in front of my eyes again, just like these infants, right? Infants in the first six months of life triple their birth weight. It's the fastest time of rapid growth in life. And then from six to 12 months is the second fastest rapid growth phase of life where they, you know, then, you know, they, they kind of double that weight. So, so you, or sorry, I mixed that up. You double your weight, then you triple your weight by year. But it, but it's, you know, those are the fastest rates of growth. So what you're doing there, both from biomass, sure, calories and those things are important, but more in my mind is important is like, you are literally designing how the body thinks about the environment of food. And, and you want as much as possible. So keeping it in. But, you know, I want families to feel really confident. It is going to likely be a non-event. And in the very worst case scenario that your kids already developed an allergy, you are going to be able to manage it. You just are. Yeah. You guys, I can't actually believe it, but the school year is here. And that means it's officially time for us all to up our packed lunch game. So you all know by now, we are major fans of Once Upon a Farm products. We have them in our home at all times and we just love them. They are such a convenient way to add some nutrition and deliciousness to packed lunch or any meal you're making. We love Once Upon a Farm. They're the leading baby food and kids snack brand and all of their products are always organic, non-GMO, unsweetened and made with no preservatives or artificial ingredients, which means you guys, they are as nutritious as they are convenient. They're made with whole farm fresh ingredients, which I absolutely love. And they've got so many products. They've got organic cold pressed fruit and veggie pouches, dairy-free smoothies, overnight oats, plant-rich meals, and more. They've got so many products. And 
honestly, I'm just so grateful for Once Upon a Farm because I think we all want our kids to have a good amount of fruits and veggies and plant-rich meals. But honestly, the work of prepping those on a continual basis is just not sustainable. So having their products in the fridge is just such a convenient, healthy option that is ready in a second. And they're great for all ages. So you can use their pouches as a puree or add it to a puree to pack in some more nutrition that way. I personally love adding them to smoothies and yogurt. And they also have great finger food options, which is great for baby led weaning or meals for older kids. Honestly, there isn't a product that they have that we've tried and have not thoroughly enjoyed. And the other thing is they have this amazing subscription offering that's completely customizable. So you can pick and choose from their wide variety of blends or meals and switch it up before each delivery. This has been a game changer for us because right when I'm out of food, all of a sudden I open my door and here comes a new box of all the items I want. And they're found at retailers nationwide and online. So get started today and enjoy an additional 35% off your first subscription order. Use code LIVING at onceuponafarmorganics.com. That's onceuponafarmorganics.com. Code LIVING. Go try them. You will love them as much as your kids do. Let's talk through that management too, because I think some parents get, you know, so you feed your kid, let's say they do have an allergy. What does that look like kind of Mm -hmm. long-term? Do you ever reintroduce it? Do you go straight to an allergist at that point in time? You know, is there a ladder approach of reintroducing that food? What does that look like? Yeah. Well, you asked such a, such a good question. So first and foremost, it's manageable and food allergy families are some of my biggest inspiration. I mean, but it is, it is a life-changing diagnosis without question that living on the planet when a food is dangerous to your child is really off-putting. And uh, I mean, I think it's just deeply unsettling to families and to children themselves. Further, you know, we don't live in a very tolerant, kind culture. I mean, let's be honest. We know that one-third of children who carry a diagnosis of food allergy are bullied in the school environment about their food, their food allergies, meaning that someone taunts so them with food, sad. someone ridicules them with food, right? Puts them at risk in a way that makes them uncomfortable. It is absolutely inexcusable, which is why it's everybody's responsibility in some ways to help families who do have food allergies or don't, but our children understand how to take care of their friends, how to think about their friends, how to plan a party, how to plan a field trip, how to plan, right, something that's even celebratory that is inclusive to those families. So, you know, I think what it looks like is you have a lifelong diagnosis. That being said, we are at the precipice in some way. This prevention science, you know, part of the reason I took this role with Spoonful One is that I realized there's only a certain number of times in, in my lifetime as a pediatrician that a new field of prevention was going to come around. You know, I spent a decade or more before this working on behalf of the American Academy of Pediatrics and, and spokesperson for all sorts of organizations like the CDC, even on vaccines. It's like when we prevent disease, it is the most amazing thing possible. When we prevent food allergies, this data that flipping the science and saying, instead of avoiding foods, you eat all these foods. But we also are at a burgeoning moment when it comes to treatment of families with food allergy. For the very first time in the last few years, a drug called Pelforzi was approved by the FDA to treat peanut allergic individuals. Now, it's not considered a cure, but Pelforzi is basically small, increasing amounts of peanut fed to children on a very regimented schedule with a pediatric allergist 
over time that basically has them so that if they had an accidental ingestion of peanut in a Rice Krispie treat or something that they didn't know, they would not have a life-threatening reaction. So that is groundbreaking in the sense that now there's an FDA-approved drug that is literally only made of peanut, (laughs) right? And we're now feeding that to allergic individuals. There are are trials underway from, from other companies that are even looking at feeding all different kinds of these common allergens at once in the same philosophy even that Spoonful One uses where you just try to get all these different proteins into a baby's diet every single day while they're growing up so that they create this level of tolerance. So in some ways, it's more hopeful than it's ever been when it comes to food allergies, but we haven't squelched the epidemic in the sense that we're still seeing the development of food allergy. We think there's some slowing around the world, specifically in Australia, they're starting to see slowing, but the Australians are feeding their babies peanut and tree nuts regularly. It's like 70% of Australian parents are putting these things into the diet regularly because their public health campaigns have been so successful. So it's any listener right now, right? It's up to you to make sure not only you, but all your parent friends know this too, that you know if your pediatrician is not gung-ho about this, I don't need you to find a new pediatrician. I just need you to find new advice about that. You may love your pediatrician and they, you send them to me and I will talk to any pediatrician about this science. I will send them all these different trials and data and we can send them even to webinars and things. But I, you know, to be honest with how you opened, you know, more and more we think pediatricians really are caught up. However, I think one of the things they don't understand that I think if I were still in full-time practice, I don't think I'd, I'd know either. There, people are, pediatricians are increasingly aware of introduction. They know you want to get peanut in early and they know a lot about peanut, but we haven't thought through that it's only actually 7% of people with a food allergy that are monoallergic to peanut because unfortunately 30 to 40% of people with an allergy to a food are allergic to more than one food. And the immune system is protein specific. And what that means is that when you feed your baby peanut, you're developing a tolerance and a recognition of, to- of you know, familiarity with peanut, but you're not creating a familiarity with the egg protein because when the immune system sees peanut, it's just seeing a little portion of the folded protein of peanut. And the, and the antibody that bonds to that is specific for it. So it doesn't learn or anything about eggs. So you got to feed your baby egg. You got to feed your baby cod or shrimp or hazelnut or, you know, cashew butter to get a recognition for that specific food. So because the immune system is so smart and specific, That's why you want to get all these different foods in early and then keep them in. So, you know, I think pediatricians are aware about that early intro, but they haven't thought through that every single study that's been done that's proved the benefit of early introduction required months to years of feeding to get the data. So it wasn't like, there's no study out there that says, okay, give your baby peanut once when they're four months of age and and they'll never develop a peanut allergy. All the studies looked at feeding regularly, right? Starting peanut early and then keeping it in. Although I'll tell you, I presented at a meeting in in the Czech Republic in Prague in early July of, this is 2020 or 2022, I mean. And, you know, when we were there, a a study called the Practidol was out and they were looking at actually babies even just having licks of these different common allergens in early life. And there is some data to show that even licks in early life before you're eating all these complementary foods is likely to be beneficial. So kind of the earlier, the better when you start complementary feeds and the more that you get, but keeping it in the baby's diet is what is clutch to getting that immune system super tolerant. You know, and I think some of it is kind of unintentional with pediatricians because the early and often thing is great, but if we're also telling families to wait three days in between introducing a new food, just if you do the math, there's not enough feeding or meals designed to be able to kind of populate the diet with the foods that we need. 
That's right. Well, we don't, we don't know. Pediatricians aren't supposed to recommend that anymore, right? It's an old, and honestly, when I first started this work five years ago and I was working with Dr. Nato at Stanford and we were like kind of trying to figure things out, we were, I started to talk to all these like world-leading allergists and immunologists and, and we were like, why did, where did that come from? And people think it actually came from baby food manufacturers. Like there isn't a study out there that says the safest way to do this is to feed a food and feed it three times and then move to the next. It was just kind of a convenient thing to do. And I'll tell you, when I was, you know, practicing in those early years, like it was really easy advice to give. It was just kind of like, go slow, take your time, wait, be cautious. I mean, I think families had this like, oh, okay, no, pressure's not on. And I'm unfortunately saying the inconvenient thing, which is like, pressure's on. <laughs> like you start, you get all these in, you go as fast as you can, you keep them all in and you use this amazing time in a baby's life where their immune system is different than when it is later. And I like to, I like to talk about it in the case of, and most families have heard this, that like, you know, it's really easy for the human brain to learn multiple languages at once in early life. So you raise a kid in a trilingual household, that kid figures it out, sorts it out, and like goes off to kindergarten speaking three languages perfectly, right? These are called polyglots. It's like Trevor Noah, you know, the comedian, like he speaks like seven languages or something, right? And he like learned them all when he was growing up, he like tribal languages and English and, you know, all these different languages from his family. And it's because he grew up learning that way. When you're seven, the brain like shuts down and becomes inelastic. So like I learned Spanish when I was in high school and then later because my family moved abroad and, and, and like I'm still just kind of an awkward Spanish speaker, right? Had I learned it when I was five, right? I'd be awesome at it, right? My brain was elastic and now it's inelastic. Same thing with the immune system. The immune system is really different in early life compared to what it is in later life. And that's why you want families to just kind of get at that early and go for it. And again, there's no perfect map. Mom and dad get to kind of figure out how to do it. But that three day, you know, you were talking about pediatricians that if they tell you that they're very cautious and they haven't thought it through that the risk is, remember that child study I told you about in Canada, if you get to 12 months and you haven't introduced it because you've been waiting three days and you only got in six foods because it was easier than getting in 60 foods, well, your kid is at actually higher risk than to develop a food allergy. So the longer you wait, the higher the risk and the, and the least opportunity leveraged from a standpoint of kind of that open wide immune system. When I was at Prague, I, I, I did a co-presentation with an allergist from Spain and she's doing this amazing thing. I mean, and this is, this is this kind of what's called oral immunotherapy where you take a sick individual and you try to get rid of their food allergy. And she says with infants, instead of it taking like a year, she'll find an infant who develops an allergy, you know, really early allergy at six, seven, eight months of age. She'll start doing OIT then and she can reverse them in months because she's like the immune system then is just like wide open. And she's, you know, trying to reverse these allergies in kids even earlier, which is kind of off label. But what she's saying is like, their body is just different in that early phase. And that's what's so amazing about, I mean, think about how they, how kids learn language, how they imitate, how they're, like what we do in early life, you know, what these babies yeah. are doing in that first 1,000 days. And specifically in these first 300 days when yeah. it comes to feeding is just kind of magic. I had a client the other day that was so sad. She, the whole school was going on a field trip and it was to a cookie factory and she kept her kid home because her kid had a, you know, a peanut allergy. And it's, this whole idea that like society really isn't tolerant enough of it because it could be that a kid could go to a cookie factory in the sense that if you really trust the process or if there was a non-allergic option for that kid or something like that. But it's sad that kids with food yeah. allergies are missing out on some of these experiences. And so I'm so happy with what you're doing with Spoonful One and just educating because I think we all need to understand it more, help each other out and just become so much more tolerant and understanding understanding of it and, and empowered. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. And I think, 
and not to do an advertisement here, but you know, Spoonful One is designed. So I'm, I'm now a professor at Stanford University as well. And Dr. Nadeau, our founder, right, did research at Stanford. And then a patent was created to make the recipe basically for Spoonful One. And, and what she studied was she took both infants and children and she fed some just single foods, like some, she purified protein powder, fed them protein, just one, peanut. And then she fed some kids two things. So she'd do cotton shellfish or she'd do pistachio and peanut and she'd feed them doublets. And then she took three other groups of kids and she said, okay, I'm going to feed them 10 different foods at different levels, just a little bit of 10 different foods. So peanut, milk, egg, hazelnut, cod, shrimp, shellfish, right? She did this combination. Then she said, okay, I'll give them a medium amount and I'll give them a, a much larger serving. And she had those kids in all those different cohorts for an entire year or every single day, they either ate one, two, or a mix of 10. And after a year, she drew all their blood and basically looked to see what happened to their immune systems. And the kids who ate, it didn't matter if it was a little bit, just this little 30 milligram size of, of these foods or 300 milligrams, tenfold that. They, were, they had these immune systems that had seen all these different foods and were toned down. They were far less allergic. And that's how she made Spoonful One. It was like, this can't just be about peanut. She's sitting at Stanford taking care of all these kids with multiple food allergies. You know, some kids have an allergy to peanut milk and egg. Yeah, but some kids have an allergy to cod and to shellfish, or they have an allergy to sesame and to soy, or they have an allergy to wheat and egg and dairy. You know, it's like, there's all these crazy combinations. And she was like, these kids are getting left behind. And it's really impractical to think that families will get all these different foods into their diet routinely. In fact, a study called the EAT study was published also in the New England Journal of Medicine, like the LEAP trial was. And the EAT study evaluated babies, even as young, starting as three months of age that were exclusively breastfed. And they had families just try to get six different common allergens in their baby's diet twice a week through infancy and the preschool years. And only like 30 some percent of families in the research trial could get six different common allergens in their baby's diet every week. So Spoonful One is designed as like a mom hack or like a dad hack that just says, I want families to introduce these foods, these flavors. I want families and babies to self-feed. I want you to share your family meals. You know, there's all this data on family meals. It doesn't matter if it's breakfast, lunch, or dinner. From a socioeconomic standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, from a mental health standpoint, from even criminality. I mean, kids are less likely to go to jail if they have a family meal at home. So like, I love family meals. I mean, I mean, I love them with my own family, but I, I love them in the standpoint of like how we learn. So feed your baby everything you're eating, but recognize as well that it's going to be really difficult to get all these common allergies and routinely. And that's why Spoonful One was created. Take as little share of a stomach as possible. So it's not to replace a meal. It's just to augment a meal, but it's, it's not a supplement. It's just food. So it's just 16 different foods at that pre-measured amount of 30 milligrams that was in the study at Stanford and just says, all these different common allergens. Feed your baby whatever you want today, but make sure you also are just making sure the immune system is like, oh, there's hazelnut. Oh, there's pistachio. Oh, there's cod. You know, oh, there's peanut. So that while your baby's learning to love food that you're helping them enjoy and you're enjoying the family meals together, their immune system is benefiting from a really rich protein diversity. And that's, that's what it is. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that's funny about, for me, this is the first for-profit, you know, endeavor I've ever done. And, and I, you know, I never thought I, in some ways, would do, would work in, on behalf of a company. But the point here is like, I, you know, there are 4 million babies born in the United States every year. If eight, if, if we keep this up, if we keep this food allergy epidemic up, 8% of those babies will go on to develop a food allergy. That's 320,000 babies born in 2022 that'll 320,000 babies that'll go on to be a kid who can't go to the cookie field trip and feel kind of crappy about it, right? And a mom and a dad and a grandmother and a house sitter or whoever, like, or a friend who's gonna worry at a sleepover about this child's safety and let alone a child having the psychological toll of, of having to kind of think differently about food and not have that food freedom. 
So Spoonful One is here until the food source is different and until families feel really comfortable. And you know, this is not for us just a United States experience. So we've launched in China, we've launched in Japan. I just, I mean, this morning I was up at six in the morning, 4 a.m. Pacific, talking to, you know, 27 different centers across the, you know, China, working on making sure that we're helping families all over the world and changing the food source all over the world. And so, you know, this is a big play for us of saying, we want families to understand this science. We want to make it easy for them, but this is not just about selling something. This is about mom to mom education and what you're doing as a dietitian as well, of really helping people understand the why so that anyone who's listening is circulating this of like, don't be scared of these foods. Increase your friend's comfort with all these different foods. Keep these, when you have somebody over and they're feeding their baby, enjoy a really diverse palate. Keep all these different foods and flavors in a baby's diet and look to the solutions like Spoonful One or others that make it easy for you to be really successful. Because I mean, I bought almost all of our baby food. I enjoyed all these family meals and shared it all, but I certainly don't feel like I was a perfect feeder. And I want this part of your feeding to be comprehensive. I don't want you to just focus on peanut. I don't want you to just focus on baked egg. I don't want you to just think about getting, you know, active cultures and dairy in the diet. I want all those things in your baby's diet, but I want you to get all these things in really early and regularly so that your baby gets kind of the best shot. Well, I love this. Thank you for the work you're doing. I mean, you were even named how many babies are impacted by this. So thank you for getting the word out and yeah. And thank you for this conversation. I'm so excited about it. Yeah. Well, from, from, from when kind of quasi badger to another. I'm so glad that we had this conversation and thanks for sharing these ideas with your listeners. And you can find me, you know, on social channels. I'm just Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson on Instagram. Reach out to me. I'll respond in DMs if you want or go to Spoonful One. One thing I'll tell you on the website is that there's an allergen quiz on there. And basically what it does is it kind of takes your guiding principles. So you answer questions about how you feel about food, what your family history is, who your baby is, and then it'll spit out basically a plan to introduce allergens for you. So some families are like, I'll just put Spoonful One in my baby's diet right away. Some families are like, no, I want to do a little peanut milk and egg first and then do it. And then others are like, I want to introduce every single different allergen food group, but we'll spit out recipes to use whole foods to do that. And then you can just print out that PDF and then you can have a kind of customized based on kind of what your guiding philosophies are, what your baby's risk is and kind of how to do that. So it's, I think it's just called the allergen quiz on our website too. So you can go for there, but I'll answer any specific questions that I can. And I wish you all luck in feeding your babies. It's one of the most amazing magical things we do with our kids. So um, I, I want families to have a really good free time doing it. I couldn't agree more. We hope you found something meaningful from this episode. It'd mean the world to us if you'd take a second to rate, review, and follow the show and tell your friends about it. It's the best way to support the show. And if you have any questions you want us to cover on the show, call our voicemail line at 833-444-FULL. We want to hear from you. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Meaningful Living and visit our website, MeaningfulLiving.com for resources, courses, and to shop our favorites. Can't wait to see you next week. 